Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Crime Weekly. I'm Stephanie Harlow. And I'm Derek Lavasser. So we are just going to dive right into today's episode because we know you guys love when we have like small talk and chit chat. We know you guys love that, <laughs> but we're going to uh, skip it today. But stay tuned till the end of the episode because I do have a couple of things I want to mention to you. But we left off in the last episode with a, you know, a brief discussion about Raymond Moody, who is a convicted level three sex offender who was reported to have been living in the Sunset Lodge, which was a roadside motel in Georgetown, South Carolina, during the time that 17-year-old Brittany Drexel vanished off a busy road in Myrtle Beach. The last time that Brittany's cell phone pinged, it was in the general area of Georgetown and McClellanville, and this area became the focus of several searches during the investigation. But initially, nothing came from this search, or from the identification of Raymond Moody as a person of interest in Brittany's disappearance. In December of 2013, skeletal remains were found in Horry County, South Carolina, in a wooded area about 10 miles away from where Brittany was last seen on Ocean Boulevard in Myrtle Beach. Horry County Police Lieutenant Robert Kegler announced that the remains had been found scattered through the area, leading law enforcement to believe that animals may have been responsible for moving them around, and they had been in that area for several years. The discovery became of interest to those involved with the Brittany Drexel case, especially after the Horry County coroner confirmed that the remains were human. However, Media reports in the state suggested that several people had gone missing from that area since 2007, so the bones were sent to a lab for further testing. This past weekend, Brittany Drexel's mother, Dawn, got a call from law enforcement, a call she feared could be coming for the past five years. She had said that they had found some skeletal remains, and... Um, it does, it makes your heart, I mean, it, to me, it kind of puts a pit in your stomach, you know, could this be it? On Saturday, the remains were found in a wooded area off Tidewater Road in Horry County. According to Horry County police, they may have been there for years. Now, Horry County Coroner Robert Edge says those remains that were found right near here, right in those woods over there, are going to be sent to Charleston to identify the sex. They've always told me I had to come to terms with her, with the possibility of that she may be deceased. Um, but as a parent, how do you prepare yourself for that? The search for Drexel never stopped, but Dawn is aware that another chapter of her daughter's case could be closed if the remains do come back as her daughter's. It's not closure, it's a resolution. I don't think you could ever get closure, closure especially when you know you have a loss of your child. Nearly five years later and a mother's pain doesn't go away, and Dawn says it never will. And for now, there's just one more thing this mom wants to hear. For her saying, Mom, I love you. Yeah, that, that's a that's a tough one. You know, we've talked about this before where some of these families go years, 10, 20, 30 years and never get closure. I know I've worked with parents personally. We have a few of them where they might they might never get that resolution. So I always wonder how I would be if I was in that situation. Would I be relieved to know that my loved one has been found, maybe even though they're not still alive or would it, would I be more, would I'd rather think that they could still be out there somewhere? I don't know. I don't know how I would feel. Yeah. I guess it's the difference between having hope still, but having no closure and no answers. Um, which, which do you prefer? And, and I mean, most of the time you don't really get a choice in that, right? Right. And they both, 
they're both terrible outcomes. And I like how she said it. And and sometimes I have to correct myself. It is, it's not closure. It is more of a resolution where you have some type of ending to what you've been going through. It's never going to make you feel complete or like satisfied with the outcome, but just to have a little bit more knowledge question for you. You may not know the answer to this. As we were watching that clip, there was a short video of what a, uh, of Brittany, but it appeared that she was in some type of of hotel or motel. Is that the video that that gentleman had taken and, and given to police? Because it looked like it could be. Yes, that's the video that was taken that Friday night when she was on the beach and people were harassing her and she kind of went off with that guy and she said, you know, take me back to my hotel room. He took that video. That was a little clip from that video. Yeah. Okay, good. Because I wanted to ask you about that because I thought I missed an opportunity when you brought it up last week, I kind of, I was there, but I, I didn't, I didn't jump right on it. And then by the time I started thinking about it, it was kind of too late in the story to go back to. I felt like it would take us off track, but I wanted to ask you about this individual because you haven't said this person's name or anything, but thinking about it after we recorded and I was like, actually, that doesn't sit that right with me because, okay, she's out on the beach. She's being harassed by these individuals. I'm assuming it was more like cat calls, things like that, whatever it might be. And she was uncomfortable. So she sees this gentleman that she does not know and says, hey, will you you know, pretend you're with me or whatever? So they think that I'm taken and spoken for and, and, and we'll stop. This person agrees. She brings him back to the hotel with her or, you know, was it a motel or hotel? I want to make sure I'm saying that right. Yeah, it was like a motel, you know, a, a touristy sort of motel. Okay, motel. Yeah. So they go back together and Brittany does not know this gentleman before this incident. And yet she, um, I'm assuming it allows him to come back into the the room with her, which to be fair, you know, that, that's, that could be dangerous, right? That can be dangerous. You don't know this gentleman. He, he could have just been in the right place at the right time, but also not been a good guy. And I, I think about myself and, and you know, if she just met the stranger, she's bringing him back to her room, but him, then he's not taking like a selfie with her or anything, but he's like recording her with his phone, like interviewing her almost like got the phone facing her and not him while she's sitting on the bed, which it triggered it for me when I just saw that video. Am I looking too deep into this? I mean, no, obviously that wasn't safe. I think about when I was that age and even older, I did stuff like that all the time. It makes now me paranoid as I am. I think about the stuff I did. I mean, I remember I went to a college party once with a friend. It was alumni weekend. He was off. I kind of like went off with another guy. I didn't even know I just met him. He like brought me back to his apartment. He like gave me a shirt to change into. I fell asleep on his couch. What a bad decision. What a bad decision to make. But you're thinking like, oh, he's my age. You know, he goes to school here. What's the worst that could happen? That's what you're thinking then. That is not what I'm thinking now. So when you're young like that, you don't really you don't see that danger. You don't see that danger. And and I don't think she ever saw that danger while she was there that weekend with anybody. She just thought these are new friends to make and this is a fun time to have. And everybody's out here trying to have fun like I am. What's the worst that could happen? Yeah. And I mean, I'm not even like saying, oh, Brittany, what were you thinking? It's more so like if this guy's a good guy, why is he like recording a video of a woman he just met while they're sitting? Like, you know, she, he knows why she asked them to come back. They're they're obviously hanging out for a few minutes. And his move when he gets back to the hotel is, let me pull out my cell phone and start recording this girl. Like not even with me in it where we're doing like a funny video or something. It's like, hey, so what are you doing? And he's like sitting behind the camera facing it at her. I don't know. I just for his behavior, it feels a little odd to me. Now, 
I don't know if he's going to come back and be involved or whatever, but I remember you saying that he had a video of Brittany that he turned over to the police. So that's awesome that he did that. Obviously it helped narrow down the timeline, but I do ask myself, like, why were you taking a video of her in the first place? Like, how did that come about where you decided after meeting this girl, maybe an hour before you're going to start recording a video of her while what it looks like from that clip, she's just sitting on her phone, texting someone, presumably her, her mom or her, her boyfriend. And you're taking a video of her. It just it felt a little off to me, not saying this guy's a bad guy or anything, but it just felt a little weird to me. I don't think I'd be doing that. Well, to be fair, we don't know what was in the entire video and they never did release his identity. So the audio or anything. Yeah, there, there was videos of the two of them together. He could have taken a selfie like video with them, but they, they wouldn't have released that because they didn't release his identity. And it was it was 2009. Right. Am I right on that? That date? 20, 2009 yeah. when this happened. So the whole having the ability to take videos on your cell phone was like fairly new around this time, like very new. So it could have just been like, you know, like, oh, I can take a video on my cell phone. Purely could be innocent. I just wanted to bring it up because when we got done, I was sitting there like editing, like approving all our recordings. And I was like, I kind of missed that one where she's like, this guy just happened to have video of, of Brittany on his phone and he had only met her like, and I was like, maybe I missed one there. So I was like, I- I'll bring it up next episode. And then that clip played and I'm like, there's another clip of her, this guy taking video of her. I don't know. It was just, just a little weird to me because the first episode, it looked like she was out on like a balcony. This looks like the interior sitting on the bed. So it was clearly a decent amount of video. She's in two different locations in that room. So just gets my wheels spinning. I just wanted to bring it up. Maybe maybe it's a nothing burger, but you know, bring it up. Yeah, I think they were hanging out for a couple hours together that night. So, and I'm sure you're not the only one who thought that. I mean, at this point now, especially people watching our videos, their brains are like tuned to true crime. They're looking for it. They're looking for that stuff. I mean, it's, and it's good. It's good to look for that stuff to to be able to explore those avenues, which I'm sure the police did explore. But yeah, I can see how that would be sketchy to you. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And I wanted to thank everybody who corrected my pronunciation of that county, Horry County, which I was calling it Horry County because it's got an H, but it's a silent H. And like, yeah, to be honest, it didn't feel right calling it Horry County, you know, but that's how it was spelled. So thank you guys so much. I will never make that mistake again. Um, but, you know, what what we're finding here is, you know, Dawn Drexel, we see her in that clip with these remains being found in South Carolina. By this time, Dawn Drexel had moved from Rochester, New York to Myrtle Beach so that she could be an active participant in the constant search for her daughter. And I believe Brittany's sister, Marissa, also moved there with her. And the remains that they found, they turned out to not be those of Brittany Drexel. They belonged to a man who was over the age of 20. I looked to see if they ever identified this person. Um, I'm sure they did, but they never reported that they did. So it was kind of like as soon as they found out it wasn't Brittany, they just stopped talking about those remains, which kind of makes me sad because I kind of wanted to know, like, what what was the story with that? Like, did this person get found? Did he get returned to his family? Did he have a name? But um, not that I could find. And, um, you know, although no one wanted to hear that Brittany was gone, obviously, this was a dead end still. And this new dead end was discouraging. Myrtle Beach Police Captain David Nipes said, quote, In my 27 years here, we haven't had a case like this before or since. We don't typically have people who go missing unexplained. Someone knows exactly what happened to Brittany, and we need that person to step forward, 
end quote. The Drexel family praised the Myrtle Beach Police Department, who had continued to conduct searches as the years went by and who were contacting the family sometimes twice a week with updates, but Brittany's parents still felt that there were others who were not doing as much as they could, with Chad Drexel saying, quote, Why haven't the parents of the children who went down with Brittany ever contacted me or Dawn? I find it hard to believe that no one knows anything, end quote. And once again, to be fair, I do understand that by this point, it's almost five years later, there's really no leads. There's nothing to, to say what happened to Brittany. The family would be suspicious of the people that Brittany had been with in Myrtle Beach that weekend. I would have been. Um, I mean, hell, I was suspicious. Everyone around this area was feeling that things didn't exactly add up and that the kids that Brittany went down with, not really kids, a lot of them were adults, they had to know something. We all kind of felt like maybe they weren't directly involved, but they they probably knew something that they were too scared to disclose. And with this new information that's recently come out, it kind of turns out that, no, they, they weren't involved at all. As far as we know, there's always a possibility, but they, they weren't involved. They didn't know anything. And I really do wonder, you know, how it felt to sort of live under that shadow and that cloud of suspicion for so many years. Because even if there's no evidence, even if the police aren't calling you, you know, a person of interest, there were a lot of allegations being thrown around. There was stuff going on on the Internet. And, and these these young people did have a heavy amount of suspicion aimed at them. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. It must be difficult. But to be fair, based on the circumstances, just as you read them to me in episode one, it makes a lot of sense to start with them. Yeah. We basically broke it down for me it was to two groups. We had the group that she went down to Myrtle Beach with, and then we had the group that she met up with while she was there. Right. And so you have a lot of people there that could potentially be involved. Uh, it could be very minimal where there was some, you know, some theories that maybe they just set her up, or it could be as involved as one of these individuals did something directly to her that caused her death, whether it was malicious intent or an accident. They, they, they need to be vetted thoroughly because the best person that could maybe lead to what happened to her would be the last person to be seen with her. And that's also an opportunity to close that gap, that timeline of when something could have occurred. So it's only natural for investigators to focus their efforts on individuals that were with her literally 10 minutes before she goes off the path. So they're going to start with her. They're going to start with those individuals. And then they're obviously going to revert back to the individual she came down with. Because is it possible that as she walked down the street back to her hotel, the group that she was originally with in, you know, intersected with her and they decided to hop in a car and go somewhere? Of course it is. That's commonsensical. So you start there. You want to vet all of those theories thoroughly. And then you can expand the scope of your search. So I understand both sides of it. It's a necessary evil for investigators. It's a natural reaction for parents and loved ones of the victim. But it's also very difficult for the individuals who are being labeled persons of interest. You hit on this last week with with Peter, right? Peter was his name. Yeah, Peter. First name there, pop the collar guy. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. he, like you said, and I think it was a great point. Like I say person of interest and it doesn't really bother me too much. But for someone who is a young kid, not exposed to this, being labeled anything in a, in a disappearance of a human being, very scary, very traumatic because you don't know where it's going to lead. And I'm sure they could see how it looked, especially with them checking out of their hotels at 1 a.m. in the morning, which is to me not normal. So there must have been an explanation for that that they gave police. So as you're saying, it may not lead down to them, 
but I can see both sides of it. Very, very scary, very traumatic for the people being labeled persons of interest, but also something that needs to be done from an investigative perspective. Yeah, but I do feel and, and this is hard because what what we do, obviously, is is we kind of do discuss these kinds of public theories sometimes. But I do think once the police have said, like, OK, this person's been cleared, we're not looking at them, we're exploring other sorts of possibilities, the public really should kind of like back off a little bit, you know, and 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 not. Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> I know. It's like trying, it's yeah. trying to control like a natural disaster at that point. It's impossible. Um, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. So in January of 2016, FBI special agent in charge in South Carolina, David Thomas, held a press conference where he announced that although there had been no arrests made and although Brittany's body had not been located, the FBI and local law enforcement were now sure that Brittany Drexel was no longer alive. Thomas claimed that they had known for some time that she was dead and suggested that law enforcement had talked to one or more people who had confirmed their worst fears. What we've come to discover through the course of the investigation now is that Brittany Drexel did leave the Myrtle Beach area we believe she traveled to this area around McClellanville and uh, the North Charleston, South Georgetown area, and we believe she was killed after that. We're here today seeking the help from the public, from you, the media, and helping us get the word out about that. We know this is a great community. We know there's great people here. We know there's people that saw something, heard something, that has information that could lead us to closing out this investigation and bringing closure to this family who's dealt with this awful tragedy. And anytime you work an investigation like this, they're extremely difficult. And we understand, and I said, we've looked at thousands of leads so far, but there's still information that we need. I've been authorized by the director of the FBI to offer a $25,000 reward leading to the arrest and the conviction of those responsible for killing Brittany Drexel. After seven long years of waiting and praying for the return of my daughter, we know she isn't coming home alive. Brittany's life was stolen from her in a brutal and senseless fashion. I need your help in bringing the people responsible for her death to justice. They needed to be held accountable for taking the life of, of our precious young daughter. She had her whole life ahead of her. She had a lot of dreams and aspirations. They could have done this to anyone's child, but they did it to mine. So I am here now asking for your help. I know there's a mother, father, sister, brother, son or daughter in the North Charleston County or and South Georgetown county areas that has information that will help solve the murder of my daughter Brittany. Please help us to bring these killers to justice. Help us to put them in prison where they belong for the rest of their useless lives. They will never again take one of our children away in such a brutal fashion. We need your help so we can find Brittany's remains and bring her home to lay her to rest and make sure that monsters like this can no longer victimize this community or kill anyone else's child. We need your help. 
we need everyone's help to bring something from her home to us. We need your help. We need someone to help us. Seven years. So you just Please want, help. We just want Brittany to know that we love her so much and that we will get her justice. So that was Brittany's mother, Dawn, and her father, Chad, at the end of that clip there, obviously begging the public for information that would lead them to their daughter and allow them to bring her home to bury her. Yeah, that's a tough clip. I, I wonder, I know that they they were very cryptic and they didn't say too much, understandably so, but they must have said something or, or given information to Brittany's parents to to make them believe that she was, in fact, dead. I wonder what that information was. It had to be more than just we believe she is because we haven't found her yet. But clearly they were very selective in what they said and what they didn't say to the public because, again, they're looking for this individual. They may have, as we refer to it in the past, as guilt knowledge that may connect them to the crime. So they have to be careful what they put out there. But there had to be something substantive to suggest, okay, we have an indication, a clear indication that she's deceased. Not only the fact that there's no trace of her anywhere. It has to be more than that because she could be kidnapped and still be alive. So I wonder what that information or what that piece of evidence was where they were thoroughly convinced enough to tell the parents of this victim that they could stop hoping that she was still alive. She was gone. That's a tough conversation to have. And as a law enforcement agent, you better be right. Okay. So I'm so glad that you said that because I I was going to ask you, like, Listening to that press conference, they obviously didn't give specifics, right? But they seem to definitely have something, right? And I remember watching that press conference and thinking, like, the police have to have something. They're just not sharing yet because they seem very confident, not only about the fact that Brittany's no longer alive, but they seem to have some idea of what had happened to her. And if they didn't have a body, they'd have to have something concrete, like you're saying, such as like an eyewitness or someone who had given them information that had checked out. Um, and it's funny that you said that as a law enforcement official, if you are going to go with this, if you're going to make this announcement, if you're going to tell the parents who clearly you can see in this clip, they've been told something that makes them very certain of what happened to her. And they're almost specifically like these monsters, you know, it's almost as if they know who might have done it. And, um, you know, I, I'm not I don't want to I don't want to say too much because it's all going to come to a head in the final episode and the final part of this series. But as it turned out, they had gotten information from a man named Taquan Brown, an inmate at the McCormick Correctional Institution in South Carolina. At the time of this press conference, Brown was serving 25 years in prison for an unrelated manslaughter conviction. But he'd told the police that before he'd gone to prison, he had seen Brittany Drexel on four separate occasions over the course of one month in 2009, the year she went missing. Taquan Brown was from Walterboro, South Carolina, and he told law enforcement that he'd gone to what he'd called a stash house in McClellanville on Monday, April 27th, just a few days after Brittany had gone missing. Brown claimed that he had entered this stash house and he saw 16-year-old Timothy Deshaun Taylor raping Brittany Drexel along with 8 to 12 other men who were taking turns sexually assaulting her. Brown said that he didn't immediately know who this girl was and it wasn't until a few days later when he saw a story about her disappearance on the news that he put two and two together. 
Now, a few days after this initial time of seeing her, Brown claimed he returned to the stash house and he saw Brittany there again. He was there to give Timothy Deshaun Taylor's father, who's also named Timothy Taylor, some money. Now, if you remember from part one of this series, 37-year-old Timothy Sean Taylor had been arrested in July of 2010 after being accused of taking part in the attempted kidnapping of a young woman in Myrtle Beach that same month. And Timothy Sean Taylor's brother, Randall Keith Taylor, had also been charged with the kidnapping and murder of another young woman from 1998, although those charges were dismissed later due to lack of evidence. And now we have a jailhouse informant claiming that another missing young woman had been seen in a house where both Timothy Sean Taylor and his 16-year-old son, Timothy Deshaun Taylor, were seen, and the younger Taylor was being accused of kidnapping Brittany and taking part in the sexual assault of her. Now, Taquan Brown said when he returned to the stash house the second time, he witnessed Brittany Drexel attempting to escape from her captors. He was out in the yard conversing with the older Taylor man when Brittany ran outside and she was pursued by four men who hit her on the head with a gun and dragged her back inside. At that point, Taquan Brown claimed he heard gunshots from inside the house, and he assumed that Brittany had been shot and killed. He said he was getting in his car to leave, and he saw two men walk outside the house carrying a rolled-up rug that they put in the back of a truck before driving away. The working theory was that Brittany had been held against her will for several days, She'd been murdered, and then her body had been dumped into an alligator pit, with FBI agent Jarek Munoz claiming that Taquan Brown had not been present for the disposal of the body, but, quote, several witnesses have told us Miss Drexel's body was placed in a pit, a gator pit, to have her body disposed of, eaten by gators, end quote. Munoz also claimed that there were several ponds and pits like this in the area, and officials had already searched several of them but found nothing. Law enforcement claimed that they had confirmation of Brown's allegations from a second inmate, and this inmate claimed that he had gotten secondhand information from Timothy Deshaun Taylor. And apparently, the inmate had heard from Taylor that Taylor had taken Brittany from Myrtle Beach to McClellanville, where he lived, and he proceeded to show Brittany off. He introduced her to some of his friends. The informant said, quote, they ended up tricking her out with some of their friends, offering her to them and getting a human trafficking situation, end quote. But when Brittany's disappearance started getting a lot of publicity and McClellanville became a focus of the investigation due to Brittany's cell phone data, she was killed and dumped in a gator pit. Now, Taquan Brown's story will be elaborated on a few years later, and we're going to get there. But, you know, so far... What do you think about all this? I just said a lot of things. Well, it sounds pretty convincing. I have to be completely transparent. The fact that this sounds like what happened to her, but you're telling me it basically the beginning of part two, just because I've been doing this so long with you, it can't be this straightforward. But maybe maybe there's more to it. Initially, it sounds valid. Um, I'd have to know what the incentive for, uh, I'm going to screw these names up. I know it because they're so close. Tayshawn Brown, what his reasoning for- I'm sorry, Taquan Brown. See, told you. First shot. Already screwed it up. <laughs> Taquan Brown came forward with all this information. There's a lot of specifics in there. It aligns with the uh, the 
the GPS data that they have, the pinging of her phone. Um, it also aligns with the fact that they haven't found her body. But as I'm like picking it apart in my head as you're talking, yes, they're getting corroborating stories from different individuals allegedly that might have been there or not. But my thing would be, okay, so Mr. Brown says he goes to this stash house, which for anybody who doesn't know what a stash house is, there may be a few of you out there. You can stash a couple of things. It could be prostitution. It could be usually it's drugs where you're stashing the product that you don't want found. And in my experience, we usually had a money house and a stash house. So the stash house was where the drugs were. So the transactions would take place in the stash house. The money from the said drug transactions would be kept in a separate house, which is the money house. Why do you do that? Well, if we raid the house, anything that's found in that house where the drugs are, money specifically, that becomes an illegal, uh, a legal seizure. Um, if the money's in a separate home, it's police's responsibility to link this money house in order to seize that money. And it's a lot harder to do. You basically have to have individuals from the stash house going to the money house to create the narrative for a judge so that you can seize not only the drugs, but the money, the cars, the assets as well. That's why you have two different houses. But back to get on the story, if Mr. Brown went to the stash house, I'm assuming he could tell them where it was. And I would think they would get a search warrant for that stash house. And if what was taking place, like Mr. Brown described it, was actually happening where she was being pimped out essentially to have sex with all of these individuals, her DNA would be everywhere as well as a lot of other DNA. But there would definitely be remnants of her DNA. And so I would be at that stash house immediately swabbing the entire place, looking for traces of DNA that can be analyzed and then compared to maybe some familial DNA of her family members. I don't know if that was done, if it wasn't done, if that was done and it came back where there was a match, I could see why they were so confident about this information. If that wasn't done, I still will give them credit. These details are pretty graphic and pretty specific and it does seem to align with what might have happened to her because they have no trace of her. Um, so I'm cautiously optimistic at that point. This point, that's where I'll leave it. Yeah. Um. I don't. I don't want to get too far ahead. So let's talk about Timothy Deshaun Taylor first, the man who was accused of being responsible for abducting Brittany for the purposes of human trafficking, and the man that Taquan Brown claims he saw raping Brittany. Now at this point. Taylor had not been charged in relation to anything in connection with Brittany Drexel, but he was hauled into a federal court for a 2011 robbery that he had already confessed to being the getaway driver for. Now, this is kind of sketchy um, because Taylor had been found guilty in a state court for his role in a robbery uh, of a Mount Pleasant McDonald's where a restaurant employee had been shot twice. And Taylor had cooperated with the authorities and they gave information on the other individuals who he had committed the crime with. And he'd been sentenced to 18 months of probation. But then in August of 2016, federal prosecutors convinced a grand jury to indict Taylor on that same crime stating that they felt he had gotten off too easily. And this was a highly unusual move since federal authorities typically don't prosecute a case that's already been adjudicated in another court. And Taylor's attorney called it a squeeze job, basically an attempt to force Taylor to confess to his involvement in what had happened to Brittany Drexel or to get him to give information that would lead to her body. Through his attorney, Timothy Deshaun Taylor gave a statement saying, quote, I had no involvement with anything to do with Brittany Drexel. I don't know Taquan Brown, and I don't know why he would call my name. 
I'm being prosecuted again for a crime I already helped them solve and did my time for, all because some guy in prison is trying to cut a deal. It's not fair to be charged for the same crime twice, and that's not how our system is supposed to work. End quote. So I see both sides of it. I'm going to try to be objective here. First off, it is very uncommon, but it's also uh, very legal. You can do it. And and sometimes when this happens is you will have the state give a very light sentence. And, and in federal sentencing, you usually have to serve at least 80% of your sentence. That's the minimum mandatory sentencing. So um, although very uncommon, it does happen. And I will say in in his defense, Deshaun Taylor's defense, he's 100% right, in my opinion, that that's why they were doing it. I don't think they were trying to force him to, to uh, admit to something he didn't do, but they were indirectly saying, hey, listen, we know that you know more than you're telling us, and we're going to make your life really, really difficult under the eyes of the law. We're going to use whatever means we have at our disposal to make your life difficult, because if you didn't do it, but you know who did, this is going to get really bad for you. Now, some of you may agree with that. Some of you may not. I'm just telling you what it is. So he's not wrong. They absolutely were looking at that previous charge and saying, all right, you know what? You're not going to tell us, even though we have all this information. Well, maybe we'll just decide to charge you federally as well. It's a robbery. We have the right to do it. And we're going to make sure that you get sentenced in this in this court as well. And you're not going to get off lightly. And even if you do, you're going to have to do 80 percent of the time on top of your state sentence unless they convert it. Um, But I will say he's right. They're going off a jailhouse inmate who's possibly trying to cut a deal to save his own ass. And I don't like this guy necessarily if he did the crimes he's being accused of, but he ain't wrong. He's pretty much spot on with what they're doing. Yeah. And I mean, you'd think for them to do this, the police, the FBI, for them to be like, hey, (laughs) we know you did this and we know you have information and or, you know, we know you did this or you have information that can tell us who did. And so now we're going to use this old thing against you in order to basically get leverage um, for you to sort of help us with this new case. You'd think that they'd have to have some pretty compelling evidence to do that, right? I feel like they would. Well, going back to what you just read to me, that whole narrative you gave me, it's so specific. Like where she was taken from, where she was brought, the people that that he this individual is implicating have a previous record or a history of doing things like this. Um, it's pinging in, you know, the stash house was probably in the area of where her phone last registered. Uh, clearly it was McClellanville. So all these things are lining up and then you have the the specifics of how she was killed and where she was, her body was disposed. So I, I don't know. I wasn't there. I don't know who they corroborated the story. I, I'm hoping they didn't just take this individual's word and like, yep, got to be telling the truth. I'm, I'm hoping there was other information that they got from different individuals, not just secondhand information and maybe some actual tangible trace evidence, whether it's like I said, DNA, something where they said, okay, there's some validity to this because they are, they're really going all in on this and they may be going after a guy who had absolutely nothing to do with Britney's disappearance and or death. Yeah. You'd think they'd have to have some kind of physical evidence, like you said, because they did go to that you know stash house, that alleged stash house, and they did search it and they brought forensics teams in. So you think like, Hopefully they got something from that, because if they went into that stash house and they found absolutely no evidence that Brittany Drexel was ever there, that would sort of go against their theory that Timothy Deshaun Taylor and his father, Timothy Sean Taylor, had been involved with what happened to Brittany Drexel. All right. So first off, two things. Yes, you're 100 percent right. If she was in this house for an extended period of time and she was being raped, 
you would expect to find her DNA in multiple locations. Secondly, I know you so well because as you're saying it, you have a phrase in the way you say things. So you're like, you would think, you would think, and that just tells me everything, by the way, because it's, I know where you're already leading me down here. That's the, that's the unfortunate thing of me not knowing anything. I just know you and the way you phrase things tells me everything I need to know. So I just wanted to put that out there because I, I have a feeling I, I can see where this is going. Yeah, but I mean, like, it's still we don't know, right, to this day. But I have a feeling, I have a feeling it's going to have to come out in maybe some sort of civil lawsuit. But still, to this day, we don't know what evidence they had that made them go so hard for Timothy Deshaun Taylor. We don't know. Besides, you know, this jailhouse informant, take Juan Brown. And then they had another um, inmate who who kind of cooperated and said he'd heard something secondhand from um, from Deshaun Taylor. So that's not really enough, in my opinion. You know, that's, that's not enough. But we'll get hey, there. I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this. I don't know what they had, but they didn't have enough to make an arrest. Because if they did, they would have just made it. They wouldn't have been messing around, trying to charge them in federal court. They clearly did not have enough. Exactly. Uh, because if they th- thought they were even close, they would have went to a judge with an affidavit and hoped that the judge agreed. And they didn't even attempt that. So that's one thing I can tell you with certainty. They definitely thought it was this individual, but looking at it on paper, they realized it was hearsay essentially and it wouldn't stick. And a judge is ne- was never going to sign off on that. Exactly. Because- Timothy Deshaun Taylor was arrested and imprisoned for these new charges to an old case, right? But not for whatever happened to Brittany Drexel, not with anything connected to Brittany. And when um, Taylor requested bond, the FBI argued in court that bond should be denied because now Taylor was a suspect in Brittany's disappearance and they believed that he was withholding information. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. So Timothy Deshaun Taylor's mother, the Reverend Joan Taylor, she spoke on behalf of her son in court, and she stated that there was no way he had been involved in whatever had happened to Brittany Drexel. She said he had lost an arm in a childhood accident, and at the time that Brittany went missing, he'd only been 16. He still had a bedtime. He went to church. He went to school. He was a good kid. And she felt the government was trying to unjustly pin something on him because of a bogus jailhouse confession. She called the allegations that her son or his father had any connection to Brittany Drexel craziness. Now, the prosecution offered Taylor a bunch of plea deals if he would cooperate in the Drexel case, but they also said that they would seek the maximum sentence if he didn't cooperate. And Taylor was told that if he took a polygraph test and passed it, they would recommend a lighter sentence, which he did in August of 2016. Now, reportedly, this initial polygraph concluded that Taylor was showing deception throughout, even when he answered the question, what is your name? And in June of 2017, Taylor was given another polygraph test during which he became upset and left before the exam was completed. Apparently, he had told law enforcement that he'd never met Brittany Drexel in person, but he had seen her on television. He claimed he had once heard a conversation between two individuals whose names were redacted in court documents, and these two people had been arguing because one of them had been accused of having Britney's cell phone. 
and this was an exchange which Taylor had felt was suspicious to him at the time. During the polygraph, when Taylor was asked, do you know for sure who was involved in the disappearance of Brittany Drexel, and did you ever see Brittany Drexel in person, he answered no to both of these questions. But the examiner, Special Agent Rob Walzenhofer of the FBI, concluded that he had been lying. I may as well start with the obvious question. Did you kill Brittany Drexel? No, sir. I did not kill Brittany Drexel. Were you involved in the kidnapping of Brittany Drexel? No, sir, I was not. Were you with Brittany Drexel the night she was she disappeared in April of 2009? No, sir. I was not with her. Had, had you ever met her? Or what, do you, what did you know about her? Well, um, I never met her personally or physically. The only thing I've known is from what I've been seeing on TV and the bulletins and what the FBI has been told, telling me so far. So that's the only thing that I personally know about her. And that would have been after the fact? Yes, sir. That would have been after April of 2009. She disappeared after leaving the Blue Water Hotel in Myrtle Beach. Had you spent much time up in Myrtle Beach? Were you familiar with that hotel? I'm not familiar with the hotel, but I am familiar with the Myrtle Beach area. Kind of, you know, not too big of knowing it, but I'm kind of familiar with the area. And had you been up there during that time period where you may have crossed paths with her, where somebody would have, you know, no, put sir. the two of you together for some reason? No, sir. I wasn't up there at that time. You heard the allegations from this informant, this Taquan Brown. Um, mm -hmm. He says that you picked her up in Myrtle Beach and brought her down to McClellanville. Um, first, I guess, respond to that, uh, that statement by him. And, and I guess, as a follow-up question, what do you know about Taquan Brown? Well, from what he's saying, I've been the untruth, and so far they're working towards finding out more, but... They have found out so far that the story wasn't true. And from hearing it is like, how could he just sit there and make such thing up? Such up a story like that just to incriminate me or to make me have to spend another sentence of my freedom because of something that someone's telling them that I'm involved in when I really have no involvement in. What do you know about Taquan Brown? Do you know him? No, sir. You've never met him? Never met him. Never personally met him. I wouldn't say I, I know I don't know him, but if I did meet him, I don't remember him or anything. But physically, I don't know him. Personally, I don't know him. Coming up through my childhood, I don't remember him at all. He says he saw you in this stash house sexually assaulting Brittany Drexel. Uh, says he heard gunshots. Uh, you know, recounts this whole detailed story. Um, what, do you, what do you have to say about that story? I mean, at that time of the story, when the story took place, I was a teenager at that time when I was still in school. So when I listened to the story, it's like it's not true because I know it's not true because at that time and the dates and time that he gave that, it shows that I was in school getting my education. So it's not been too much that I can say about the story. I just think it's not true. It's very, very disorientated. So did you provide... Uh authorities with proof that you were in school on the days that he says he saw you in this stash house? Yes, sir. <coughs> so, yeah. so you've been able to discount this this story? Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you also, uh, while we're on this topic of the stash house, he mentioned your father, Sean Taylor, was involved. Are you aware at all of your father having any involvement in this uh, Brittany 
Drexel case? No, sir. Had you had you ever heard anything or heard him talk about Brittany Drexel? Or? No, sir. Yeah. Nothing. Um, have you spoken with the FBI? Have they Did they question you after she disappeared? Yes, sir. I spoke with them, uh, I think it was the first time was in 2009 or 2010, and then again after they brought this uh, conspiracy charge back up against me. That was the first thing that they questioned me about, and basically was the only thing that they questioned me about was about the Brittany Drake song. Uh, so back in 2009, what was the what was the, uh, the the sort of direction of the questioning? Were they just asking you if you knew anything about it? Were they asking about your father? What were they What were they sort of focusing on? Mm, they were more focusing on did I know anything about her? Did I see her? Have I seen her? Was I in the area? Where was Where were I at the time? And did I hear anything or know of anyone who had involvement? And why would they have zeroed in on you so quickly after her disappearance? Um, I wouldn't say it was so qu- quickly and they zeroed in on me, but it was after a matter of time that they came and questioned me, I guess because they said that it was they were questioning everybody in the area because her cell phone last pinged off the McClellanville area tower, cell phone tower. So I guess they said that a few people told them to question me, to ask me questions, so I cooperated with them, answered the questions. So would you say that you've cooperated with them? Yes, very much, all the way from start till now. So the fact that you've cooperated with them, what do you think of the fact that they're now turning around and implicating you in this case? Um, so much of, so much is more of like, it seems to me that they're just trying to find someone to erase or someone to try and erase to get the case over or solve and close. That's what it seems like to me. Does it sound to you as if they're trying to, they think you're hiding something? Do they think that you know more than you're telling them? Yes, sir. And that's why they brought the second charge up against me for a second time. So what do you do if you don't know anything? And they're using this charge, these, these charges in federal court, to get you to give them information that you say you don't have. What happens? Um, pretty much I have to just keep telling them the same thing, giving them the same story of I don't know anything, and hopefully one day they'll let it go, or either I have to go back and do the time for it. All right, just to confirm before we break that video or audio down, however you listen to it, um, Mr. Taylor, I know he's being interviewed. Before the clip, you had said that Special Agent, I'm not going to try to say his last name, but Rob, had said that he that Taylor was clearly lying. Who is this individual that's interviewing him? He's just a local reporter. Just a local reporter. Okay, that makes sense. So I don't put a there's there's people out there that put a ton of weight into physical verbal cues. I do believe in it. I was trained on it, but I do think that there are outliers and that some people just have a, a mannerism or a behavior to them. So I don't ever look at a video interview or a audio in, or listen to an audio interview and say, oh. Clearly, you can see they're lying. But just if you're using the methodology, the tactics, the signals, the signs of people lying, I'm not seeing it in this video. Uh, Mr. Taylor seems like he's answering the questions without really thinking about it. He's making direct eye contact. His body is not bladed. His legs are open. He's exposed to the, the interviewer. 
He does for people who don't have the video. You're only listening on audio, but you know, Stephanie did say it. Mr. Taylor only has one arm. Sometimes you will see that they'll cross their arms if they're guarded. He's not displaying any of the physical indicators of being uncomfortable, having anxiety or, or being deceptive or guarded against what he's saying. And as far as what he actually said to the interviewer, it does make sense. The biggest thing I took from the interview was the fact that he's saying, you know, I was young. I was still in school at the time. Well, on one hand, I'll, I will tell you personally that I have worked murder cases where 14, 15 year old kids have shot and killed someone. So that to me doesn't hold any weight at all. But what does hold weight to me is the fact that he's saying he has proof that he was in school during those times. That does mean something, but it also, if I'm just being completely like open to the idea here, he could have been in school for six hours and then been going to the stash house after hours. It doesn't mean he was there all day, every day. But I will say, if they're able to at least trace that back and they're able to go back to their informant, Mr. Brown, and say, well, around what time of the day did you see Mr. Taylor in there? Oh, it was during the day, nine, 10 o'clock in the morning to five o'clock in the afternoon. Four, it doesn't matter. He was there all the time. Oh, really? You saw him there on these days all day long during the morning hours. Yes, I did. Okay, let's go back to the school. Let's see if he was marked as absent or present. Do they have cameras there? All these different things that you can do to confirm or discredit the alibi that Mr. Taylor was at school. Extremely important information because as we all know, can't physically be in two places at once. So either Mr. Taylor and the school are lying or this informant is lying. I would tend to lean towards the informant who has an incentive to be cooperative, quotation marks here, um, so that he can get a lesser sentence. So that that's where I am after that interview. Very compelling, good interview to find because it really does give you some insight from Mr. Taylor's perspective. Yeah. And when the interviewer asked, you know, can you prove you were at school, you could see um, Timothy Deshaun Taylor kind of look over to his left and he verifies this with somebody that's his lawyer. So if it's his lawyer saying to him, like, yes, we do have that, right? I'd assume they already supplied that alibi, that evidence to the police. And and they're still kind of law enforcement, still kind of traveling down this path of, you know, Timothy Deshaun Taylor knows something. And it could be, it could be still at this point that officers believe based on information they've received that Mr. Taylor was there after hours, right? Mm -hmm. Nine, 10 o'clock at night, pretty close to where he lives, where he goes to school so he can easily get over there. So they may be saying, hey, listen, you might not be the main person. You're a young kid, but you were present in that house and you know what was going on and you know the other individuals that were there. Police officers could have been going into this saying, listen, we don't think Taylor's the guy, but we think he knows the guy. And we have something on him and he's been identified. So we're going to squeeze him to get to the guy. Yeah. And a take on Brown had told the police that there was over a dozen other guys there. Right. So at this point, he may have only allegedly been able to identify Timothy Deshaun Taylor. So he could have been like, well, I know Timothy Taylor, but I don't know any of those other guys there. So now maybe police are trying to put pressure on Taylor to give up the names of the other guys. But Taylor's like, I don't even know what you're talking about. This never happened. I wasn't even there. There are no other guys. Like, I have nothing to give you. And you can kind of see his frustration in this interview where at the end, the interviewer's like, well, what do you do now? You know, you, you can't tell them anything. And he's like, well, I just keep telling them the same thing. And like, That's hope right. that it gets through eventually because there's I have nothing to offer. 
And I do think that this is a little unnerving because we see sometimes in law enforcement when you have a suspect or you have a person of interest and they keep putting pressure on you, sometimes that person just tells them what they want to hear so that they get left alone. And that's when you start getting false confessions. And that's where you may have had um, Timothy Deshaun Taylor pointing fingers at random other people just to get the police off his case and, and get them on somebody else simply to be left alone. And this is when you have an investigation spiral out of control and you're literally chasing your tail. So there is a danger with that happening. And I think that there was a big danger with that happening here. Luckily, um, Timothy Deshaun Taylor sort of stuck to his guns and he kept saying, like, no, I don't know anything. I wasn't there. This never happened. Yeah, I think it's a great point that you brought up. There are when you're the police officer and you're trying to get information out of a potential co-conspirator or a witness or someone who's just using the code where they don't want to talk to police, you do have to push them. Usually they're not willing to give it up on the first try. You got to really put pressure on them before they crack. They don't want to be a snitch. But there is this invisible line of how far do you go because you want to push them far enough so that you get the information that they have if they have it. But like you just said, you don't want to push them so far that maybe they don't even give a false confession, but they just start telling you what you want to hear and start sending you down wild goose chases that uh, uh, involving individuals that don't exist. Because now you've pushed them so far that they're going to be quote unquote cooperative, but they're having you explore options that aren't even valid. And then there's the other side of it, right? Where uh, if you're Britney's family or the family of anyone who's lost a loved one and you're, you would want, I know I would want police to push the individual that's been linked to my son or daughter's disappearance if there's this information out there. So as family members of the victim, you want police to be aggressive. But again, fine line between doing it the right way, being aggressive, doing what's within the confines of the law to get the information you need, but also going too far and actually hurting the case more than helping it. There's no book out there that tells you exactly where to stop. So it, it is kind of, uh, it's specific to the case and you got to be very careful. And it, it sounds like you said, uh, Mr. Taylor stuck to his guns and nothing really came of this because he was consistent with his stories every time to the police. Yeah. And, you know, I do want to get back to the polygraph test, too, in a second. But I also want to mention that, like, you as a police officer, as somebody who was a detective and, and had to do this with people, you also have to look at Timothy Deshaun Taylor's history. He wasn't somebody who was adverse to cooperating with the police. He had been involved in a 2011 burglary where he turned against the people that he that he was with. He told the police who they were. He testified against them. And then he received 18 months of probation because he was just the getaway driver. So he doesn't have a history of kind of like, oh, I don't want to be a snitch. He's done it before. So wouldn't you think that in this case, if there was something there to give, he would do it again? I do. But just to play devil's advocate, I think I'm just trying to get into the mind of the police department. I personally think that they believe, yes, he's been cooperative in the past. But the reason he may not be being cooperative here is because his dad was the offender. Okay. Different incentive to lie. So I'm not saying that's what happened, but I think they're thinking his dad was involved. And that's because the jailhouse informant told them that. Yeah. So are, is he going to snitch on his dad? Is he going to be more? Is he going to be less willing to cooperate when it's his father? I think most people would say yes. So I think that's maybe where the police, where their minds were, not saying it's right, but that's where they were coming from going, he ain't going to crack because he doesn't want to dime out his dad. So we're really going to have to push him to the point where he could be doing 
more years in jail for his dad. And let's see how much he's really willing to, you know, to go down for him. Yeah. And going back to the polygraph tests. Right. And we've talked about this before. And I, I've said I absolutely think they're garbage. <laughs> like I never want to hear about them. You know, we mention them in cases because it's part of it. And some people do put a lot of weight into these lie detector tests, but they're really usually not admissible in court for a reason. It's because they're not super reliable. And when you look at somebody like Timothy Deshaun Taylor, he doesn't seem to be super verbal. Like he doesn't seem to be somebody who's comfortable expressing himself through words. Um, he's He seems even kind of nervous, a little stiff when he's talking to the reporter. You can tell he's been prepped by his lawyer of what he should say, what he shouldn't say. And, and sitting, you know, attached to a machine with all of these like cords coming off of you and talking to an FBI agent, this kid's going to be real nervous, right? He's going to be real nervous and he's going to answer to the best of his abilities, but it's still coming back that he's lying. And we see this a lot where people will say, oh, it showed deception. But sometimes that's just an increased heart rate because they are very nervous, right? Yeah. I, there's there's a few factors that come into a lie detector test, sweat, um, heart rate. I don't know what else there is. There's a few different things that they kind of use an algorithm within the computer system to establish if there's a level of anxiety during the answering of certain questions. It's not perfect. We've, we've talked about lie detectors tests at nauseum. It can affect different people differently. And some people, like you said, the minute you put their finger in the, in the machine, put the strap around their chest, they instantly get a level of anxiety. And I think the fact that you might've said he was even lying when, or it showed signs of deception when he was even answering questions like, what's his name? Yeah. And that's your control question. Yeah. Obviously, he's not lying about his name. So if he's showing signs of deception on questions that you know he, for a fact, he's not lying, it's going to be very hard to, to use that test in any capacity where it's actually viewed as, as something that's valid. And you would agree that we sometimes see law enforcement use polygraphs as interrogation tools. So it's very rare for us as the public to ever really see like the actual results of the polygraph. We just usually have like an FBI agent being like, yep, he showed deception on that question. And dude could just be making that up. He could just be lying and saying he showed deception in order to once again make Timothy Deshaun Taylor nervous. Oh, they know. They know I'm lying. I might as well just come clean. And, you know, I don't I don't really like it. I understand why it's used in certain situations. But once again, I will say with this specific scenario, I just don't think they had enough to, like, pursue him as hard as they did. But you heard the Myrtle Beach police captain, David Nipes, he's like, we don't have cases like this. We don't understand. This is frustrating. There's nothing. There's nothing. We can't follow any leads. We don't have any leads. What's happening here? Everyone was frustrated and they may have wanted a resolution to this case to the extent where they were sort of like making it happen, willing it into existence, even if they didn't know that that's what they were doing. This was the one strong lead they thought they had and they were going to follow it till the wheels fell off. Yeah. All I'll say is because I don't want to be a hypocrite. Not that anybody could confirm this unless you've been in an interrogation room with me, which there's been hundreds. Um, but I've definitely done that just to be completely transparent. It's a form. It's called trickery. It's completely legal. And there's definitely been times where I've said, yeah, you came back, you were lying or uh, that's not what your buddy told me. And 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 some in me, most cases, they still stick to their story. But there have been cases where I say, you know what? The test came back. You are lying. And it's not a matter of if you're lying or not. We've already confirmed that. I just want to know why. And it's a way of doing it where they feel like, yep, he's got me. And then all of a sudden, they're admitting to what they did, not knowing that I have nothing. So I, I will say I've done it. There's a balance there. You know, most 
most guilty parties won't just roll over and tell you you got to really pull it out of them. It's a chess match in that room. And and some of you at home may not agree with it. I'm not going to debate you on it. I just wanted to be transparent and say that I definitely utilize that tactic to get uh, people to confess to something. I've never had a situation, knock on wood, where I've gotten a confession out of someone and down the road, it turned out that they didn't do it. Thank God. But um, I've definitely done it. It's something that you're trained to do. Some may agree with it. Some may not. I just I want to be transparent. But that's why it is imperative to have a lawyer when you're going into the situation because the lawyer is going to tell you like, hey, listen, the police are legally allowed to lie to you. You know, the police can mislead you. So you kind of know and you're not like just a, a kid sitting there having no idea, being terrified and being like, they have something? Well, they have something. Like, maybe I did do something. And then you just start filling in the blanks for yourself. And um, absolutely, we've seen this be effective, right? In the Chris Watts case, that's basically what happened with Chris Watts. They they knew- A lot of cases. Yeah, they knew it was him, right? We all knew. I mean, you had a pulse and, and eyes and ears. You knew it was Chris Watts just from his interviews with the media. But the police knew it was him. They just needed to get that physical evidence. And so they- gave him a polygraph so that he would lead them to that physical evidence, which they could then use in court against him. And that's very effective in that way. But always get a lawyer. Always get a lawyer. And I, I don't think nothing, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You want to get a lawyer, whether you're innocent or guilty, if the if the police officers are doing the right thing, they can still question you in the presence of an attorney. So it's just a matter, you know, you have a right to have someone present for, before you're, you know, you're given your Miranda rights and then you have the right to have an attorney present during any questioning. It doesn't stop them from questioning you. So, yeah, I, I have no problem with it. If the cops are doing the right thing, it, it shouldn't be an issue. And if the cops have enough, whether you decide to talk or not, it's not going to matter. They're just, you know, you're going to disagree and not speak to them. And they're going to say, OK, no problem. You're under arrest based on what we have. And we'll deal with it in trial. If they don't, they're going to let you go and they, they got to go build a stronger case. Or they'll just find something you did in your past and recharge you with it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I And I'm trying to be objective here. I They clearly thought that he was involved. And some of you may agree with it. Some of you may not. And I have a feeling it's going to turn out based on just how well I know you that he was not involved um, because I can see where we're talking here. It's, I'd be an idiot not to put two and two together based on your verbal cues and your physical cues. Right. But, you know, it's one of those things where it didn't work out here. They definitely pressured him. Um, but I'm hoping that you don't tell me he ended up being charged with something and serving time for something he didn't do. You did mention very quickly about a civil suit. So I'm interested to see how that goes. But again, fine line, you're trying to get the guilty parties, but also you never want to see an innocent man or woman go to prison for a crime they didn't commit. It's a fear of any good police officer. So not defending it, but I, I do know it, it does occur. And it's not just Mr. Taylor that it occurred to, but absolutely with our audience, some are going to agree with it, some may not. And I think both parties are right. Yeah. And I mean, obviously with cases like this, I think that law enforcement does get very close to it. They take it personal. They want to see it solved. And that doesn't mean they're bad people. It means they got a little too close and maybe they got some tunnel vision and that's human. But you have to be human enough to recognize when that's happening. So uh, we we will hope that everything turns out all right with that. I'm sure uh, we are going to talk about it more. But uh, Timothy Deshaun Taylor and his lawyers, they also appeared on the Dr. Phil show. And Taylor said that he had never been to the Blue Water Hotel and Resort in Myrtle Beach. And that was where uh, Peter and his crew were staying. Um, he said he'd been 16 years old without a driver's license when this happened. So he wouldn't have been able to drive anyone from Myrtle Beach to McClellanville. He 
said he was not in Myrtle Beach on the evening of April 25th, 2009, and he knew this because his cousin had been having a block party that night and he was there. He said he'd never been involved in anything like human trafficking and he'd never heard of bodies being disposed in gator pits. He'd never had possession of Britney's cell phone and he wasn't even with his father at the time that it supposedly happened. Taylor said, quote, I was in school on the days when it took place, when he said it happened. If I'm sitting in my classroom getting my education, how could I know anything or see anything? End quote. Taylor's attorney, Mark Pepper, went on to explain, quote, I think after seven years of not having any answers, the only certainty that the federal government has is that a cell phone registered to Brittany Drexel last pinged in the McClellanville area. Now, why it involves Deshaun is because Deshaun was one of the eight individuals that this jailhouse rat decided to specifically name in this made-up concocted story. Because a guy who was eight months into his 25-year sentence all of a sudden said, actually, I've got something to say. Now, they didn't go validate any of this information. They didn't even go ask Deshaun if any of it was true. What they did was have him arrested on a charge that he's already pled guilty to and sentenced to and served his time and then brought him in, never mentioned the word McDonald's and only mentioned the word Drexel, end quote. Obviously, as any parent would, Timothy Deshaun Taylor's mother was vocal that she didn't believe one scrap of what this jailhouse informant Taquan Brown had said, and she spoke to many media outlets to make sure that everyone knew it, which seemed to greatly upset Britney's father, Chad Drexel, because he he did appear to be completely bought into the theory that Taylor was responsible for his daughter's torture and murder. Now, the following statement is lengthy. It was posted on his Facebook page, and it includes a lot of capitalized words for emphasis. So I will try to read it as it was written. Chad Drexel posted on his Facebook page, quote, I would like to set the record straight with a strong reply to Joan Taylor's comments to the Post Courier in South Carolina this past Friday. Based on evidence the FBI and the Myrtle Beach Police Department has gathered, along with facts and specific information gathered from a team of private investigators that I hired to work with local law enforcement actively during the case, which will soon come to light, we have no doubt Timothy Deshaun Taylor played a significant role in the abduction and murder of my daughter. Of course, the mother of Timothy Deshaun Taylor is going to defend her son. As a father, I can understand a need to defend your children. What I don't understand is defending your children when you must know the truth. Her assumptions and words stated have been verified incorrect and couldn't be further from the truth. We know Timothy Deshaun Taylor was witnessed by others, witnesses not in jail, with my daughter. We are just praying that they do the right thing and step forward with what they know. Additionally, he has been seen and followed to the exact area where my daughter's DNA was found. Joan Taylor claimed that the FBI and government are falsely accusing her son because of witnesses in jail. Well, we have other specific evidence that I cannot disclose at this time for the safety of my daughter's case, which corroborates those testimonies. Timothy Deshaun Taylor is known to be involved in dogfighting, bringing drugs to parties, raping women, mostly Caucasian young women. He either picks up unwillingly or friends of friends that end up being drugged and taken there. This is only the beginning. 
There is a ton more evidence and horrible info we would like the public in that area to be aware of for their safety, but we are unable to disclose at this time. Without a doubt, Timothy Deshaun Taylor is a suspect in my daughter's disappearance and murder. My family and I will be following the FBI's request to keep specific details in my daughter's case under wrap until this horrible piece of trash goes to prison for life. After the guilty verdict, we will be happy to dispel these fairy tales that are being spun by Timothy's family. It is disgraceful the way this family and their friends are supporting and claiming innocence of a proven felon without even looking at the evidence presented and the facts surrounding the case. Also adding this piece of trash's photo so everyone can see who he is. End quote. Yeah. So there's that statement. Um, Now... I don't know. He's talking about DNA in the statement. And I did search everywhere. He could have been hearing things from the police that they never, ever, ever reported um, out loud. But as far as I can tell, in court testimony where they were saying that that Timothy Deshaun Taylor should be kept and he shouldn't get bail because he was a suspect in Brittany Drexel's case, they didn't reveal that. As far as I could tell, there was never any like indication that Britney's DNA was found anywhere. So I'm not sure what he heard or what information he had or what the police were telling him. But it seems to me at this point, maybe the family was getting other information from the authorities, including the FBI, that may have convinced them beyond a shadow of a doubt that Timothy Deshaun Taylor was responsible for what had happened to Britney. Because once again, Chad Drexel seems to be quite sure. Um, What do you think about this? A lot of nothing to me. He's saying that I know, I know, but I'm not going to give you anything yet to support how I know. So it's just, a, it's just, it's just basically words. I don't like the fact that he's stating that his own private investigators were working actively with law enforcement on the case. That wouldn't make sense to me. We wouldn't normally do that. So I hope he's just embellishing, and that wasn't the case. Because if the FBI and local authorities are involved, I don't think they would have private investigators working with them, specifically the FBI. So I don't know how truthful that is, but this is what happens. And this is why law enforcement usually doesn't share information with the family because their emotions are involved. They can't help it. They're not wrong for that. But when they know information that the public doesn't, they may not disclose that information, but they do everything short of that when they see things out there. And police departments won't do that. They won't do what he just wrote here. They won't put the photo up of a potential suspect or person of interest on the internet and dox that person. So there's major problems here. And so if he was being given information that wasn't for public consumption, this is one of those situations where I think even you, Stephanie, would say, okay, yeah, you know, this is how it can ruin it for everybody else when their families are just trying to get information about their loved one's case. No, absolutely. And when you were saying, like, this is why I knew exactly where you were going with it, because we have had this discussion before. But but still, in this case, with with what happened to Brittany, it was still very early and they had new incoming information. So I, I don't see any reason when the case is cold 10, 20 years to involve others and sort of like share information. But when you have like an active lead that you're following and you have like a suspect in custody, yeah, probably not the best thing to do because, yeah, the family's going to want people if they truly believe that Timothy Deshaun Taylor did this 
and now Timothy Deshaun Taylor is walking around. They're gonna they're gonna have this concept. There's they're gonna have an idea that oh maybe people other people aren't safe from him, right? So now we want to warn people as a public service and let people know what's going on. And you know, I can un- I can understand it would be very frustrating too if you truly thought that this young man did this to have his family and friends defending him like publicly. I can understand the frustration, but this is one of those emotional posts that. I'm always like, I'm always tempted to like write myself and my husband or you. You're like, don't do that. It's a it's a bad idea because you're you're fueled right now by something that's going to just have you like typing out a bunch of stuff and kind of like just bleeding out all over the the screen or the keyboard instead of using logic and actually getting your message through in a productive way. So these are, luckily, I usually run those things by you or Adam. And then usually 90% of the time, you guys are like, don't do that. (laughs) And then then I don't. I can't do it here. Can't do it here. This is a situation where this letter, this letter to, you know, a social media following could have led to someone taking justice into their own hands and killing Mr. Taylor. Could happen if they believe what he's writing. So you can have an innocent man be hurt or killed for something he wasn't involved in just because of your words. This is something that's really, really dangerous. And it is it is a, a big reason why law enforcement is so apprehensive about giving families any information, even though I can tell you firsthand it kills us not to. This is why. Because once you do and you let that animal out of the cage, that passion that they have for their kids, there's no telling them otherwise. And that's 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 the risk you run by sharing anything. And I remember when we first started talking about Taquan Brown's story about, you know, the house and the gator pit and stuff like that. I asked you, like, what do you think of this story? And you were like, well, it seems, you know, detailed. It seems like he's giving very specific things that happened. And I remember hearing the reports about the house and the gator pit when they first came out. And of course, it was compelling because I had been following the case and it was the first new information about Brittany that we had gotten in years, you know, but I also distinctly remember feeling that it sounded like a little dramatic, you know, kind of like something that would happen in in a Liam Neeson movie, you know, like taken like a little too thought out, you know, he pulls up, he sees this horrendous thing happening and then she's running out of the house and, and men are chasing her and they're pistol whipping her and pulling her back in. And then he hears shots and then he hears, you know, he sees a two guys leave with a rolled up carpet. And then he's got this whole story about the gator pit. And then you got FBI and law enforcement officials searching all these gator pits. And when you look on TV and you see the news, you see them searching these gator pits. And it was just like, I don't know. It, it's it's a lot. And it's a lot coming from a not so reliable or credible source like Taquan Brown, who was a jailhouse informant who really who was in you know prison for killing somebody himself. Right. It probably was trying to give the police something. And I I thought about it at that point, And I'm like, listen, Timothy Deshaun Taylor's father was sort of like implicated in maybe being connected to Brittany Drexel several years back. All this dude, Taquan Brown, had to do was read about that, figure out who he was related to, and then sort of like bring it back to that initial theory because Timothy Sean Taylor, the father, was initially like considered a person of of interest in this. So he could have just like read the papers, figured that out, and then used it to build his story off of. I think it's important to know whether they're telling the truth or not, you have to, as a police officer, know that most of the time, jailhouse informants, whether they're telling you the truth or not, they're giving you that information to benefit themselves. 
And that's always a filter that you have to enter those conversations knowing that they're doing it for their own benefit, not anybody else's. Very rarely do they come to this uh, moment of clarity where they want to be a good guy. So that's something that you always have to go in there and use that type of skepticism when you're interviewing them. I agree. And uh, Chad Drexel, he also claimed that he believed wholeheartedly that he'd come face to face with Timothy Deshaun Taylor in 2013 when he had traveled to McClellanville to look for clues about what had happened to his daughter. I had firsthand knowledge of meeting Timothy Deshaun Taylor. Didn't know it at the time. That happened when you were down there putting up posters and flyers and doing things to keep the awareness going, right? Correct. I um, went down three years after Brittany went missing and um, I said to my private investigators, can you bring me down the area that you've been, the people you've been talking about to me so I can hand out flyers to everyone I see? What did you see? Well, when they dropped me off, I um, first visited what I believed is like a small little bar. I wanted to hand the bartender the flyer and explain to him I'm the father of the missing girl that's been in the news. Could you possibly know anything? Please give me a call or give them a call on flyer. Then I went out and kind of friended some of the elders out there. They kind of laughed it off, kind of was, they were a little bit, you know, like, I don't want to be bothered with this. So about an hour later, I handed out flyers to cars that passed me, a couple cars that passed me. They took them nicely and left. Uh, then the very last car was half two-tone car. It was white in the top, black in the bottom. And when I stopped the car, they didn't want to stop at first. And here I am standing in the middle of this dirt-type road in a rural neighborhood. And they finally stopped just before me. And I handed the flyer to the driver. The two uh, people in the back were whispering something. And then I put my head in and I said, hey, have you guys seen this, this missing girl? I'm, I'm her dad. Do you guys know anything about this? And they laughed. And I, and I said, well, could you just take this anyway? So the driver, he took it. That's when they crumpled up the flyer and threw it out and sped off as they were all laughing. Now he was leaning on the car like this, so I could see that there was no arm there. Well, that was the key factor. When I got back to the private investigators, they said, you know who you just met? And I said, no, um, that's Timothy Deshaun Taylor. So you think you may have actually handed a flyer? I don't think I know I did, and this is how I know. He had told one of the investigators that was talking to him at the time that, yeah, I met the father. He had told them that, and then they told me. He remembers seeing you, Chad. Timothy Deshaun, we believe, he is leading the whole, let's snatch her, let's keep her, the raping. He's the person that's doing all the bad. And again, I have to say, these individuals have not been charged. They've not been indicted. Even Dr. Phil is like, I just, you're making some bold statements here. I just want to reiterate that no one is guilty right now. Like, we just going to keep it calm and cool and collected here. Uh, but yeah, Chad Drexel seemed pretty sure that he had, you know, encountered Timothy Deshaun Taylor and Timothy Taylor had like crumpled up a missing persons flyer at Brittany. And, you know, this is kind of just adding to his belief that that this man is guilty of this. Yeah. Dr. Phil was quick with the lawyers to qualify everything to make sure they're not getting sued. That's for sure. It's an interesting story. I'm not going to ask too many questions. I'm assuming you're going to go into it or do you not go into it as far as was this ever corroborated? He's saying that an investigator, he didn't say whether it was a law enforcement official or his own PI. He said a PI. He said, yeah. He said my investigator. So I'm assuming. Yeah. And I'm, I'm uh, based on what he's saying, we're assuming that his investigator interviewed Mr. Taylor, which I don't know if that's documented anywhere. So that's that's interesting. So it looks like the police 
And we kind of heard um, Timothy Taylor mention this in his interview, but in 2009, when Bernie went missing, he was one of the people that they had initially interviewed. But when asked why that they had initially interviewed him in 2009, he said, well, I think they were interviewing like a lot of people in this area because this is before Taquan Brown comes out with his, you know, jailhouse informant um, story about the gator pit and all that. So it looks like probably there was a log of people that the police had interviewed. Maybe the police did share that information with the private investigator who then shares it with Chad. But that's just my speculation of yeah. what happened. I don't know for sure if that's what happened. If you were to ask me, how did the private investigator get information about Timothy Deshaun Taylor? I would say that's the most likely way it happened. But I don't know for sure. Allegedly. Okay. Well, well, we'll note it. See where see where it goes. Now, as I had stated earlier, there was some elaboration to the initial story of Taquan Brown. He kept everything the same, except now he claimed he had seen Brittany a few other times after hearing gunshots and assuming she had been killed. Five days after this, Brown drove to his cousin Herman's house to show him a new car he had just purchased. Now, Herman lived in rural Jacksonboro, which is 80 miles away from McClellanville and 130 miles away from where Brittany had last been seen in Myrtle Beach. Brown claimed when he arrived, he saw Brittany Drexel inside his cousin Herman's trailer. He said Brittany had a black eye and she appeared to be drugged and she was sitting in an armchair. Now, at this time, when Brown saw her, Brittany was with a group of men, one of whom Brown identified only as Nate. Brown was also now claiming to be a witness to Brittany's murder, and he said, quote, There's a wooded area on the property line, so we were walking through the path and the shooting took place. Nate shot her with a double-barrel shotgun two times, end quote. After this, Brown claims that some of Brittany's remains were buried in a garden area on the property, and after some time had passed, they were dug up and then taken to a gator pond. Taquan Brown named his cousin Herman and two other witnesses in the shooting, but Herman had died of a heart attack by this point. One of the other witnesses had been murdered in 2016, and the third was unable to be found. In April of 2019, the FBI confirmed that they were searching a now-abandoned trailer on Camp Avenue in Jacksonboro, a trailer that had once been occupied by Taquan Brown's cousin Herman, and people had questions. Firstly, why were they searching this area when Brown had initially claimed that Brittany had been killed in McClellanville? Now, Jacksonboro is located in Colleton County, and Brittany's mother had requested that their sheriff's department help the FBI search the area for the remains of her daughter. Don Drexel said, quote, they could have very possibly taken her out of that area because we were down there searching at that point and they didn't want her to be seen. This is way off the beaten track. I'm hoping for a break in the case. I'm tired. I'm very tired, but I'm also frustrated. I want my daughter to be found, end quote. The other question was why had it taken the FBI so long to search the Jacksonboro trailer? Law enforcement claimed they had not known about this part of the story. They didn't know about this area. But Taquan Brown claimed that he had told the police and the FBI about the trailer in 2016, the same year his cousin Herman had died from a heart attack. Brown also claimed that he had passed a polygraph exam and he wasn't being offered anything in exchange for his cooperation. He said he'd only come forward after his family members started receiving death threats and he had agreed to work with the police in return for his own protection and the protection of his loved ones. Taquan Brown also told the media that although he'd given the police all the information and basically solved the crime for them, 
Nothing had come of it yet. There was no arrest. There was no charges. And he was filing a lawsuit against them, claiming he'd been put in danger when law enforcement had released his name to the public. The FBI and local authorities did search the abandoned trailer where Taquan Brown claimed Brittany Drexel had spent her last days, but they found nothing. This did not stop the internet from running with these claims, even though the only information they had to go on were the allegations of Taquan Brown, who one poster stated, quote, has little reason to lie, and lying actually puts him in extreme danger. He isn't being offered a plea deal, so I think he's basically being truthful, end quote. The poster went on to say that this group of animals was likely doing this on the regular, kidnapping a girl, keeping her for a while, and getting rid of her after they got a new one. All of this speculation began to lead to references of the Taylor crime family, with true crime blogs posting mugshots, criminal records, and known associates of Timothy Sean Taylor and his son, Timothy Deshaun Taylor. So I want to mention here that this this was a big thing. And, you know, there's still a lot of blogs. You can find them if you search where they're talking consistently about the Taylor crime family and all the things that they were connected to. And I don't know how much of it is true. I, I couldn't tell you what the members of the Taylor family were up to. And I'm sure they did things that weren't on the up and up sometimes. I have no idea. I'm not going to make any, you know, allegations about whether they did or not. What I do know, though, is that no one really knew what Taquan Brown was getting in return for his cooperation with the police in the Brittany Drexel matter. He simply stated like, oh, I'm not doing this for anything. I'm not getting anything in return besides like protection for myself and my family. But it, that could have been not true. He could have been, you know, in in talks with the police to get his sentence reduced or to get moved to a, a more, you know, minimum security facility. There could have been some talks happening where they were like, if this pans out, you know, if this works, if we if it leads to an arrest, then yeah, we will we will do something for you. So basically they only had to go on the fact that he said he wasn't getting anything in return and he said he was afraid for his safety and the safety of his family. And they kind of ran with it. And that all makes sense to me. Like you said, it doesn't have to be preemptively guaranteed. It could be just insinuated or it could be assumed that if the information he gives leads to something, he will be taken care of on the back end. So he can say those things with a straight face, knowing how the system works and knowing that, hey, if I throw enough darts at the wall and one of them hits, win for me. And, you know, you had said it earlier, he's throwing out the names of individuals who coincidentally uh, are all either dead, missing, or unable to be spoken to at any point to discredit what he's saying, which is pretty convenient. Uh, the fact that he's elaborating further with more details and changing his story, not good. I can tell you as an investigator, you're not looking at this like, yes, he's starting to really open up. He's starting, we're really starting to crack him now. If he's starting to divulge more information like this, I'm actually not feeling as good. Now I'm getting that pit in my stomach where I'm like, oh no. Now he's just telling us what we want to hear. This is not good. Stop talking because you're losing us with every word out of your mouth. And I'm sure, I hope that if the investigators were good on it, they saw it as well where, okay, we've seen this before. Now he's just, he's just giving us whatever he can in the hope that it leads to something where he can say, see, I was, I was kind of right there. I got some of that, you know, I was partially on with what happened. What are you going to do for me? Not good. Yeah. And to be fair. He's, he tells his initial story in 2016. They go real hard at Timothy Deshaun Taylor. And then I believe it was like end of 2018, maybe even 2019, where he comes out with like this new information that he's telling the media. 
And he's telling the media, like, I don't know why the police haven't followed up on this information. They've had it the whole time. And the police are probably over here like, what? We have never heard this before in our lives. You know, you've never told us this stuff. And like now we're going to search because now you've told the public and we're expected to search this like trailer area in Jacksonboro. But no, you did not tell us this in 2016. If you had told us this in 2016, we would have been at that property like we were at that that stash house. And we would have been following these leads, especially for Cousin Herman, who died, you know, conveniently in 2016. We would have been looking earlier on if you had told us this. So I believe it, it was at this point they started to be like, uh, maybe he's not mm-hmm. so reliable, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. That's that's how you would look at it because these are pretty specific details. This isn't something you would just remember years later. It would be that's pretty compelling information. I'm sure uh, that you would be able to recall that those details at the time when you initially spoke. So the fact that you're, you, it seems like you're not getting what you want, so you're. You're feeling like you have to uh, remember more details. And I've seen that happen before. It's not good. It's not good because you automatically, the they're thinking that they're helping themselves when in reality, they're losing investigators and they're going to they're gonna start doubting everything they've said, not only in that moment, but also in the past. Yeah. And this went on for, for several years, you know, and, and still, it still kind of is going on because Timothy Taylor's family, they've been speaking out consistently since these accusations have been brought up. They've been maintaining his innocence, trying to raise awareness that, you know, even after he was released from jail and he wasn't charged in connection with Brittany Drexel, he was still permanently tied to the case. And in the court of public opinion, you know, he was still being considered a person of interest, a suspect you had these blogs who were talking about the Taylor crime family and very, you know, it's all over Facebook and stuff. Um, It's going to affect him. It might affect his chances of getting a job. It might have, he could be attacked. He could be the target of something. So this wasn't just like, oh, we were wrong. Sorry. Or we don't have enough to charge you, you know, go out and live your life. There was some, you know, ripple effects here that happened. And I do believe that even though they realized Taquan Brown was kind of like full of shit, Law enforcement still sort of had their eye on Taquan Brown just in case. And they were still maybe going to have him in that person of interest file that they were keeping for Brittany. I don't have a problem with that. I mean, if they don't have exculpatory evidence, something to completely rule him out, I don't have an issue with that. I don't even have an issue, to be honest, with the way they approached him and trying to maybe get more information out of him. Ultimately, did they ever go through with the felony charge in, in federal court? I'm not the felony charge, but the federal charge of the case. Did they ever go through with that? They or just threatened. They did. He was he was indicted. Um, he he did spend some time behind bars, and then he was denied bond, and then eventually he he got the bond. And you know, I don't know what happened from there, but he he was out. The specifics because they could have dropped it. Okay, and so you know we go back and forth on that, but uh, they were following up on a lead. They they probably weren't or they actually weren't putting his information out there. It was the family that was doing it, which which really complicated things and made it the issue that you just brought up now. Nothing, not going to blame family members. I, I, I can't even imagine what it is like to go through something like this. And I, I hope I never understand. Um, but being pragmatic here, this was a misstep. This was a misstep and it, and it could have hurt the case exponentially. And maybe it did. I know I can't deny the fact that I know there were developments in the case. I know there were arrests made. So those are the types of things where luckily it appears that that wasn't the situation, but it very easily can be. So 
These are the things we always have to think about. We talk about it on Crime Weekly all the time, pros and cons to having the family members involved. Uh, and not only from an investigatory perspective, but also a safety perspective where, as you've already alluded to, when you start throwing names and faces out there, there are crazy people out there that will take justice into their own hands. And that's a dangerous thing. So it's something we have to be aware of when we're trying to get justice for these families. But we got to make sure we're doing it in the right way. I don't even think it was initially the family that had put his name out there. It was like the press conference happened. And then all of a sudden, the media was reporting that this individual, Timothy Deshaun Taylor, was being arrested or brought back in for a different charge. And then when... Um, Munoz, the FBI agent, had to reveal during his trial to to deny Bond that he was a suspect in the Brittany Drexel case. The media got a hold of it. They printed his name. They printed his picture. And then at that point, I believe the Drexel family was probably like, well, it's already out there. Like, we can elaborate on at least what we think about this dude now. And so it kind of snowballed from there as it does. That's it. Definitely does. Well, that's part two. And you're already kind of through that. So I feel like there's a lot more to the story. And as you're continuing here, it, it, it really seems like this theory about her being kidnapped and sexually exploited and raped multiple times before being killed. Uh, I don't know what the truth is going to be, but there is a small part of me that's hopeful that this was a complete fallacy and this isn't what happened to her. So I don't have much peace in it at all, but just that little bit of relief that this may not be the case, that this may not be what happened to her. And so that that's the one positive thing I take out of this episode. I completely agree. I will tell you that Timothy Deshaun Taylor, Timothy Sean Taylor, his father, these were not the two people arrested for Britney's murder. So whatever, you know, whatever they had to do with anything aside from that, they were not arrested for her murder. And I can't imagine that the person who was worked with them. But I agree with you. This is a horrendous story that Taekwon Brown told. Like, fuck that dude for even coming up with something like that in his head, to be honest, because this is a horrendous story to tell. And to to put that out there, knowing that the, the parents of this girl are going to hear this. And I, I mean, for years as the parents, this would have been playing in my head over and over and over again. This is torture. And the fact that he he did lie, because I'll come straight on and tell you, dude lied. Taquan Brown, it appears allegedly that he lied. He should be prosecuted for that. He should be, I don't know what you could possibly do to him other than, you know, keeping him in prison where he already is, but there needs to be lying to a federal agent, obstruction of justice. There's there's a few things. Yeah, there. but I mean he's in he's in prison for manslaughter. It's like, what are you gonna do? Just keep him yeah. in prison longer? Like there needs to be some sort of accountability. Because you well, can't. Well, the way we're letting people out early. Yeah, for real. Tack, tack them on. Yeah. And I'll be interested to see when we're going to discuss next where Taekwon Brown is right now and what, what he's got to say, if anything, about about this new information, because uh, we will we will discuss that uh, next week when we pick up with the final episode in the Brittany Drexel case. Great. Looking forward to it. All right. We will see you guys then. Don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram and Twitter. Handles are in the description box if you're watching on YouTube. And if you're not watching on YouTube, Derek's going to tell you where you can follow us. Yep. At Crime Weekly Pod on Instagram and Twitter. And if you want to check out our coffee, it's at Drink Criminal Coffee on Instagram and at Drink Criminal 
on Twitter. And of course, you can always go to criminalcoffeeco.com and order your coffee. I suggest the bundle. Derek and I are heading out. We're getting on a plane in a couple of days to fly to London for CrimeCon in the UK. We are so excited. We cannot wait to meet you guys. If you're coming to the meet and greet, if you're coming to CrimeCon, we can't wait to meet you. Make sure to come up and say hello at our booth on Podcast Row. And until next week, stay safe out there. Later, guys. 